If you've ever wanted to know what it's like to leave a rich culture as a last resort for a safer life and found that the move made it difficult to pass that culture onto your children, this book is a vibrant, fictional account of that experience. This is a story that spans two generations of a Bengali family who moved from Calcutta, India to Massachusetts. I just wish I could have told them about Massachusetts before they bought plane tickets. Today's book is The Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri. And this is The Book Pile. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and this book put into perspective how moving my family for a better life was less difficult than most people in the world have it, since our biggest problem was living in a new place where you had to remember to move your car every Wednesday because of street sweeping. (laughs) And I'm David Vance. My girlfriend is Indian American, so I probably should have chosen this book. And if Kellen pretends I did, it would really score me a lot of points. <laughs> All right, real quick, don't forget to give us a rating and a review if you love the podcast. Even if you don't, we would appreciate your meager five stars. <laughs> Dizzy Ross says, My roommate and I love this podcast. The hosts are both smart and hilarious, which we can relate to. Random fact, I've been listening for weeks and just realized I took French in high school with Dave's younger brother. Two exclamations. Now, Dave, you have about 23 younger brothers, so... <laughs> We're pretty sure that's my brother James, because okay. he both took French and is out of high school. <laughs> the other one's still in high school, so if they're talking about him, they phrased it very weirdly. <laughs> They also add, we have been working hard to perfect our Kellen and Dave impressions. Now, Dave, I know from personal experience that having someone do an impression of you is just like having a caricature drawn of yourself, but with your (laughs) voice. Yeah, it's never nice. No, like basically the person will just take the thing you hate most about your own voice (laughs) and then do that part louder. (laughs) I have two quick stories about my Kickstarter. And first of all, the campaign's going great. We've done 30,000 in sales so far. We're very excited. And thank you so much to everyone who bought. But two funny stories. One is we did a whole podcast episode on my book to promote the Kickstarter. And I said, go to the Kickstarter, search Starling's Adventure Box. Well, I learned on launch day, if you search that, my project does not come up. (laughs) I was so mad, and it was too late to change anything. So uh, to check out my Kickstarter, please just click the link in the episode description. (laughs) I'm not going to get this wrong twice. The other story is, for our Kickstarter video, our friend Shane did us a favor, and he and his daughter are in the video. They're playing this game where they launch a balloon-powered propeller. Well, Shane's face in the video gets really surprised, probably a little too surprised, (laughs) He's not like a professional actor. He's, he's just in the video to be nice to us. Well, on launch day, he gets a text from Kellen. It's a screenshot of his surprised face. It says, this is my new profile pic of you. It sure did blow your mind when that balloon flew away. So this poor guy does us a favor to be nice. And Kellen just comes and shanks him. <laughs> So I chose this book because 
it's an example of how forced reading selections in school work great 10% of the time. <laughs> I had to read this for a college course, and I ended up loving it. For me, it's a wonderful example of how a good story, fiction or nonfiction, can help you have empathy for a life situation far removed from your own, mm -hmm. even if it just scratches that surface. So I read this book purely for that experience, because as a story snob, I do understand how some of the reviews from Audible from people who are like, nothing happens in this book. And to a point, it's true. It's a seemingly uneventful story. But also, I would argue that a whole lifetime happens in this book, which is a remarkable yeah. feat to put to paper. And real life can still be rich and sad and interesting and beautiful, even if it doesn't have any explosions or wizards. <laughs> also, spoiler, there is an explosion because a whole train crashes. <laughs> I also really enjoyed this book. I got it for my girlfriend for Christmas, which she's in residency. So right now a book is like a hypothetical present. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, our next two books are Me by Elton John and Science Fictions by Billy Joel. No, I don't know who it's by. <laughs> my dad, my entire childhood, had in his car an Elton John CD and a Billy Joel CD. <laughs> It's so funny to me because those guys toured for a while, and I'm sure it was great. But mm -hmm. all in all, if we're going to put careers side by side, Elton John has like 18 massive number one hits. And whenever <laughs> anyone hears Billy Joel, they're like, oh, yeah, Piano Man. <laughs> all right. And without further ado, here are four lessons that we took from The Namesake. All right. Lesson one. Small details can evoke big empathy. Okay, big empathy sounds like I'm generalizing all the largest empathy corporations out there. <laughs> really, I was just going for that good old parallel statement. So to state it more accurately, I just mean small details can evoke significant empathy. Big empathy sounds like a husband trying his best. <laughs> like... Oh, no, sweetie, I feel big empathy. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> Webster's Dictionary defines empathy as the ability to understand the feelings of another. Oh, you're doing it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was trying to commit to that, opening this point like a high school speech. But that really is what it means. In his book on writing, Stephen King talks about how description of a room or a landscape or an evil clown really only requires <laughs> two or three details at the most, and our mind will fill in the rest. And I think Lahiri achieves this on a cultural scale because she is so good at bringing us into the world of this Bengali family. We feel the clash so much more as they start to make a home in the U.S., again, with just a detail here and there. Yeah. So a couple of examples. Quote, it wasn't until morning, stepping briefly outside, wearing a pair of Ashok socks and her thin-soled slippers, the frigid New England chill piercing her inner ears and jaw, that she'd had her first real glimpse of America. Leafless trees with ice-covered branches, dog urine and excrement embedded in the snowbanks, not a soul on the street. And to be clear, at no point uh, does this book describe, like, America as bad and India is... Just Boston. 
But I do think that it's such a layered way of describing something because it is also she's also noticing essentially the opposite of what she has experienced. Yeah. Like, I, I especially think that the choice of having the family move there in the winter was a deliberate attempt to juxtapose not only the culture, but the climate. Yeah. Remember when we talked about how the word juxtapose is only used by people trying to sound smart? <laughs> and to be fair to the U.S., this tiny part of Massachusetts is only a small example of the country. It reminds me of when I lived in Brazil and met a family whose daughter had gotten married to a dude from New York City, and she moved there with him, and she hated America because it was cold and everyone oh, was no. mean. And I was like, hold up. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, maybe in Manhattan, but, you know, Hawaii, Oregon are also part of the U.S. People are pretty right. chill in other parts. <laughs> One more example with this mother character. Quote, she wipes the sweat from her face with a free end of her sari. Her swollen feet ache against the speckled linoleum. Her pelvis aches from the baby's weight. A curious warmth floods her abdomen, followed by a tightening so severe she doubles over, gasping without sound. She calls out to her husband, Ashok, who is studying in the bedroom. He leans over a card table. Ashima never thinks of his name when she thinks of her husband. She's adopted his surname, but refuses for propriety's sake to utter his first. It's not the type of thing Bengali wives do. And so instead of saying his name, she says the interrogative, which translates roughly as, are you listening to me? <laughs> I just, there's so much packed into this paragraph. Yeah. And again, just a couple details here and there about each thing. In less than 150 words, you already get a sense of their living conditions. You feel her contractions. There's a fun bit of culture in their communication. And then the very relatable moment thrown in with, you listening to this? <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and that's the experience that I enjoy reading or listening to this book. And again, this book isn't for everyone. It's not necessarily exciting or entertaining, but it very successfully brings you into a world that you may not be familiar with in a very immersive way. And real quick, going back to that dictionary definition opener, the first time I gave a talk in my church, I would have been like 11 or 12 years old, and I tried so hard to have a joke. So I opened with, <laughs> Noah defines the word faith as complete trust or confidence in something. And then I looked at everyone and said, Noah Webster, that is. <laughs> That would have gotten a good laugh for me, but maybe not for the reason you hoped as a kid. <laughs> oh, my word. It was the first time I tried a joke in public and the first time I bombed. <laughs> no one laughed? No, no one. Not even to a child <laughs> trying to make a joke. But it's probably why I didn't attempt stand-up for another 13 years after that. I'd love if it's your origin story and you go to your first open mic with five minutes of Noah material. <laughs> All right, lesson two. Names shape reality. One of the running stories in this book is that the main character has two names, Goggle and Nikhil. And there's this part where he's at a college party and he decides to call himself Nikhil instead of Goggle. And all of a sudden he's confident enough to make out with this random girl. <laughs> and he says, Goggle couldn't do this, but Nikhil can. Which, for any lonely teenager listening, what if that's all it takes? <laughs> You're lonely because of your loser name. <laughs> anyway, Kellen, I've mentioned a book called The Alter Ego Effect about giving yourself a different identity who can do the things that you psychologically can't, hmm. like 
Beyonce made Sasha fierce to become more confident and Kobe was a fiercer competitor as Black Mamba mm. or when Anthony Weiner was Carlos Danger, he did his most impressive adultery. <laughs> anyway, the book also talks about famous people who changed their names like Leslie Lynch King Jr. That was Gerald Ford's original name. He mm. named himself <laughs> Gerald. <laughs> That's in the namesake. She lists off. He could have picked anything and landed on Gerald or Arnold George Dorsey named himself Engelbert Humperdinck because one day he was like, you know what? I don't get enough bullied. Anyway, I, I do think your name can impact your personality in surprising ways. By the way, the name scene in this book is based on her actual life. So she went to school as a kid and she was supposed to go by her formal name, Nilanjana. But her teacher was just like, that's too hard to say. So the teacher just decided everyone would call her her nickname, Jumpa. Isn't that wild? Wow, yeah. Nilanjana is only four syllables. Imagine meeting an Elizabeth and being like, I don't have all day. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Lesson three, some stories allow you to live a whole life. Or if you've seen the newest Avatar movie, some stories are as long as a whole life. It is fascinating to me that some books take place in a day, like Ulysses by James Joyce or Green Eggs and Ham. Some (laughs) unfold over a year's time, like the Harry Potter books. And occasionally, there's a book like this that covers a lifetime. A fun alternate interpretation of Green Eggs and Ham is that he's being tortured over the course of decades, (laughs) trapped in this endless inception-like limbo where nothing ends until he eats green eggs and ham, (laughs) and yet he does not. (laughs) I know we're going to cover this on the green eggs and ham episode that we just decided we're going to (laughs) do, but the scariest part to me about that whole book is how nonchalantly everyone reacts when they are flying off of a train into the open sea. (laughs) You get the sense all the characters have been through some real trauma. (laughs) Anyway, the namesake. So this book, it covers a lifetime, but rather it's more like it covers two half lifetimes because it covers a husband and wife from essentially their 30s to about their 60s. And then also their son from birth to about late 20s, which is a neat way to structure it. Because Dave, don't you feel that like early 30s is when you one day realize that you remember your dad when he was your age now? (laughs) When my dad was my age, he was about to have his seventh child. Oh my god. (laughs) So yeah, I think about that a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So I just turned 40 and I was recently reading through my journals when I was a kid. And there's this one entry where all I wrote was, my dad turned 40 today, period. That's weird, period. (laughs) And I really wish that I could write myself back with something like, you know, it's going to be even weirder. I think this is one of those things where I was waiting for the (laughs) punchline. I was trying not to spell it out too much, but the fact that like, As a 40-year-old, I'm reading about myself reacting to a Uh 40-year-old. Aging is weird because we don't want to die, but we don't want to get older. Mm -hmm. So what do we want? (laughs) 
Anyway, with the novel set up this way, it also gives you a small peek at not only what it's like to raise a child across cultures, but also what it's like from the POV of that child. It would be like if the first half of Jurassic Park was people trying to get to an island to see dinosaurs, and the second half of the story was about a T-Rex who finally figures out how to escape his metal prison. (laughs) Speaking of dinosaurs and lifetimes, I feel like the first time I experienced this kind of story was when I saw The Land Before Time as a child. At the end of the movie, there's a short montage of Littlefoot's life from the time he was a baby. And even then, as a seven-year-old, I remember being like, it just goes by so fast. (laughs) For some reason, I know a Land Before Time song by heart because we did a performance of it in, like, second grade. (laughs) I know that song. I learned that song on the piano right after I saw the movie. Oh, really? Isn't it the one that's something like... Da, 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 with each passing day. Is it that one? The one I learned is, if we hold on together. And then someone comes in and sings, ooh. That's the chorus. Oh, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I know our dreams will never die. (laughs) Dreams see us through to forever. Oh, man, really a breakthrough in the dinosaur musical genre. (laughs) Just to finish this up, I was trying to figure out, like, not to overanalyze, but sort of discover how Lahiri can write through these lifetimes so seamlessly. And my theory is that she's able to do it because many of the chapters cover, like, core memories which, you know, when you look back over your lifetime, it's all that you remember anyway. It's something we learned from the book, The Power of Moments. It's that idea of how you can't remember what you had for lunch last Thursday, but you do remember that in September of 2005, Lisa turned you down so hard that you stared at your bedroom ceiling that night for three hours. <laughs> Life is made up of those things. <laughs> all right. Uh quick sidebar (laughs) what does it mean to turn you down so hard when you have been working up your courage to ask out a girl who's out of your league (laughs) and then she gives you the whole that's so cute reaction yeah oh no (laughs) so some of the core memories that this book covers are a marriage an arranged marriage to be exact a near-death experience a first home a first day at school a first kiss a first job and the death of a loved one among others anyway what i'm trying to say is that the namesake is the land before time but with people (laughs) lesson four the specific is the universal I listened to a podcast about the making of The Office, and one of the ideas they kept hitting was this irony that the specific is universal, meaning when you give a character specific details, they become more real, and the realness makes them more relatable and universal. So when I read this book, there were probably 15 times she described something about being Indian American, and I thought, oh, that's exactly how Ami describes it. And some are small things like, Goggle brings a girlfriend home to his parents and he has to tell her like, hey, no PDA at home. Well, when we're around Ami's parents, she's like, when we're here, do not touch me. (laughs) (laughs) Another quote from the book, 
Like the rest of their Bengali friends, his parents expect him to be, if not an engineer, then a doctor, a lawyer, an economist at the very least. Ami <laughs> <laughs> um, just went to her cousin's wedding, and we counted up the guest list. There were over a hundred doctors. Oh my gosh. But even that line, that's one of those universal lines that applies to a ton of families. Sure. One time my mom was telling my brothers, Josh, Ben, and James, to work hard at school. And she said, this will be good practice for when you're a doctor or a lawyer. And they said, mom. And she said, oh, sorry. Or when you get your MBA. <laughs> <laughs> they tease her about it. But in fairness, Josh is in med school. Ben just took the LSAT. And James wants to go into business. <laughs> And then there are some quotes from the book that are just so specific and incredible. This character, Ashima, has immigrated to the U.S. and she's pregnant with her first child. And it says, For being a foreigner, Ashima is beginning to realize, is a sort of lifelong pregnancy, a parenthesis in what had once been ordinary life, Mm. only to discover that previous life has vanished, replaced by something more complicated and demanding. Like pregnancy, being a foreigner is something that elicits the same curiosity from strangers, the same Mm. combination of pity and respect. Mm. All this to say, sort of going along with what Kellen said earlier, the more specific you make your story, I think, ironically, the more people can connect with it. Mm. Yeah, that that analogy makes so much sense. And it's also why whenever I see an immigrant, I ask if I can touch their belly. (laughs) All right, random facts. This author, Jhumpa Lahiri, Mindy Kaling named her character in the Mindy Project after her. And my recent Mindy Kaling experience is that I watched Never Have I Ever thinking it would be like a fun, dumb high school show. And then the first season devastated me. Oh, (laughs) I was so furious. I was not emotionally equipped for that. You shouldn't get to market that show like it's high school musical. That should be (laughs) against the law. (laughs) Um, If you live in Massachusetts, I was really basing my opening joke off of only certain parts of Boston, which truly suck. But I have seen the rest of the state in calendars, and it looks very nice. (laughs) This protagonist changed his name as an adult, so his life is divided between people who call him Goggle and people who call him Nikhil. And I know if someone calls me David instead of Dave... They're either family, a high school friend, or a telemarketer, and it's very useful. (laughs) (laughs) Along those lines, one of the main characters, Ashok, his favorite book is The Overcoat by Nikolai Gogol, a book he loved so much that he named his son after the author. Before his son was born, Ashok survived a massive train crash while reading the book. So later, when Ashok tells his son of the incident, his son, Goggle, is almost offended. He says, is that what it reminds you of when you say my name? And his father says, no, it reminds me of everything that followed. Hmm. And it's such a beautiful moment that I didn't want to try and make a joke here. But it did remind me that I'm named after a football player. Oh, wait, hold on. Can I see if I can guess? Sure. Was he a tight end? Yes. Oh, are you named after Kellen Winslow? I am, yeah. Oh, interesting. And not so much named after him, but but my dad read the name Kellen Winslow in a Sports Illustrated when my mom was pregnant. And my mom thought that I was going to be a girl. So my dad said, I know the baby's going to be a girl, but if it's not, could we name him Kellen? And my mom said, sure. 
And uh, that's how I got my name. And I do love my name. But the tough part about it now is that for people who do recognize that it's named after Kellen Winslow, they automatically think of his son, Kellen Winslow Jr., who is now <laughs> in prison for assault. So, oh, no, that's cool. My random childhood memory is that Kellen Winslow, after Miami lost a game, called himself a soldier, and all the press hated that he called himself that. (laughs) Here's just another passage from the book that I love. Quote, In her own life, Ashima has only lived in five houses. Her parents' flat in Calcutta, her in-law's house for a month, the house they rented in Cambridge, the faculty on campus, and lastly, the one they own now. One hand, five homes, a lifetime in a fist. Wow. I think it's just such a beautiful way of summing it all up. Yeah. A lifetime in a fist is also what I call it when I trade with someone for their soul and I hold it in my fist. No, I don't have a good <laughs> joke here. No, good good joke. Well constructed. <laughs> <laughs> So I've been lucky enough to make a living as a writer, much of which is stand-up comedy. But the author, Jhumpa Lahiri, she won a Hemingway Award and a Pulitzer by the time she was just 32. She's worked as a professor at Princeton. At one point, she moved to Rome and published two books in Italian. So you could say that she's been more successful than me. (laughs) And not that it's a competition, but... I can guarantee that she's never headlined the funny stop in Akron, Ohio. (laughs) In the very last sentences of this book, I started breaking down. There's this one last sweet moment that so much of the book has built tension toward. And then on Audible, (laughs) this cheesy music comes in before the book is over. As... (laughs) The reader is finishing the last sentences, and it's not even like Indian music. It's just a piano and a clarinet, like when Jiffy Lube puts you on hold. (laughs) So it completely ruined like this emotional peak that the whole book had built toward. I feel like Audible will do that a lot. You get to the end of a book, and it's this moment of emotional catharsis, like... He held his dead dog in his arms and gently closed its eyes. And this is audible. (laughs) Quick reminder again, if you want to check out the Kickstarter for The Starlings, a graphic novel escape room with a comic book that I wrote, click the link in the bio. That lasts for three more weeks. Finally, to recap our favorite lessons from The Namesake. One, small details can evoke big empathy. Two, Names shape reality. Three, some stories allow you to live a whole life. Four, the specific is the universal. And five, just know that if we hold on together, our dreams will never die. I just bailed on this joke like someone jumping out of a train into the sea. (laughs) 